Seattle's a unique city. We have the second most de-churched in the nation. And that means a lot of people have had experiences at church that weren't great. And not only that, the eighth highest unchurched. There's millions of people who don't follow Jesus. But for me, I'm energized by that environment because I know what that's like to have all the doubts and to just feel like faith doesn't make sense and to want to think through and talk through things and, and that refreshment and restoration that can come. And uh, welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. As always, uh, we are joined by myself, Darren, and Tyler. And today we've got an awesome, awesome guest for you guys, uh, Jesse Bradley, who is a former professional soccer player. He and I were just riffing back and forth before uh, we, we started pressing record about the great, the beautiful game of soccer. And uh, these two to my left don't understand don't understand that game. They're they're more into the brutal head bopping and, and football, the American arr, football, arr, if you will. Yes, yes. the Neanderthal <laughs> sport. Uh, but Jesse's become a pastor uh, in his most recent endeavors, and and we wanted to have Jesse on today, not only for his incredible story and his background and the way he grew up and the things that he's accomplished and the trials that he's faced. You'll you'll hear about that here in a little bit with some medical issues, but more importantly, how Jesse's encouraging people today, especially during this time through COVID, through uncertainty, how Jesse is encouraging people and those around him and, and mm. as he pastors there in Seattle at his church. So, Jesse, man, we are glad to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben, Tyler, Darren. Great to be here today. Good to uh, just stir up the rivalry between football and soccer. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll unite together here and uh, honored. And uh, Darren, you should be in the Hall of Fame soon. So that's what I'm going to throw in to start there this. We go. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. All right. See, I know I love Jesse right when we first started. Hey, so Jesse, uh, let, let, let's go back, man. Let's go back to your childhood. Where were you born? And, and 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 give us a little background of your family. Were the only were you the only child, or did you, were there a number of siblings as well? Yes, I grew up in Minnesota. Actually, the first place I lived, it was an apartment in the parking lot of the football stadium. So mm. shout out to the Golden Gophers, yeah, Big Ten, University of Minnesota. Yeah. And I just caught that fervor. I mean, we would go to hockey games, basketball games. Minnesota's not that exciting in the winter. So mm. to get you know fifty thousand <laughs> fans together or to pack out. It was called The Barn, and, you know, you had Kevin McHale in there, Michael Thompson back in the day, and I'd watch these guys, and I told my parents when I was in preschool, I want to play professional sports. That's what I want to do when I grow up, and I didn't know. know, We had Tony Dungy. You know, I didn't know which path, but I loved all sports, and I just started playing them. Uh, my, actually my parents got divorced when I was seven and that was extremely painful, unexpected as a kid. When you see that happen, you just don't have control over it. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's your family and you love your mom, dad, you want them to stay together going through that pain. I didn't know what to do with it. And I think for me, academics and athletics and especially sports, it was just such a source of pure joy. Mm -hmm. And whenever I could play, you know, the teammates, the games, the competition, I played three sports in high school. And I just loved it all. Basketball was my top sport, my number one sport. And that's what I wanted to do. But my potential was greater in soccer. So Mm -hmm. that's sometimes in life, you know, you got stronger potential in one position or area and you make that shift. And so I'm grateful how it turned out. But early on, I just knew I wanted to play pro sports. That's weird. Early in life. I don't know if I've ever heard that combination. 
Yeah, I haven't is that, either. Is that yeah, where you were going? Exactly with? where I was going there. It's it's and not only that, you know, you have basketball and, and soccer, but at the same time, like you're in Minnesota. Like I get it. Being in Minnesota and playing basketball, of course, yeah. indoors and whatnot. Sure. But where was a soccer field <laughs> in a winter time? Exactly. Indoor soccer, it's tough on goalkeepers playing yeah. on that turf and yeah. didn't cushy astroturf back then back in the day but uh my it was actually my soccer coach um who saw me playing basketball and saw the hand-eye coordination and they needed a goalkeeper and americans have actually produced early on some great goalkeepers brad friedel you know tony miola casey keller Mm -hmm. there there were a lot of guys that were able to play overseas and america overall isn't in the top echelon when it comes to soccer but goalkeepers started early and that was that transition in terms of sports. And I, I love the position right away, although I didn't grow up with the game. So I felt like I had a lot of backtracking. I had a lot of learning to do. Mm. You know, I was watching the Minnesota Vikings. I was watching, you know, Ahmad Rashad. Those were the guys I was going to those games. I liked the Cowboys early on, too. I got to say that. <laughs> um, Roger Staubach, Tom Landry. Yeah. I got a Tom Landry story I got to share at some point in yeah. our conversation. But um yeah, Darren, I know you didn't like the Cowboys growing up. I did. Huh. Uh, Vi- Vikings never win a Super Bowl, so you got to have a second team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, true. so true. So you mentioned your, your, your parents and going through that divorce when you were seven, uh, and you said that it hurt then. Now, I don't remember a lot from being seven years old, but apparently that stuck with you. So what was that like during that time going through that? You know, to be honest, their fighting was so fierce. They were just trying to hold it together. They made it through my birthday when I turned seven. And the next morning, it was over. So that was the tension we were living with in our house. And, you know, for me, my dad ended up moving away to a different city, um, then a different state. And I didn't have much contact with him growing up. So one of the biggest decisions of my life later on was actually forgiving my dad. Because I went to some counselors, you know, trying to get some help, sort through stuff. And I ended up just had the same resentment towards my dad. And it just, I even told him invented at one point when I saw him in high school and it didn't change anything. So this ties into my faith, which I didn't grow up with, but discovered in college. And when I knew God loves me and forgave me, my heart changed and I just wanted to forgive my dad. And we started a healing process and we're close today. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for our relationship. I'm grateful for my dad. But as a young kid, I didn't really know how to cope. I didn't know how to talk about my feelings. I think I had a lot of denial, but I had anger pent up. And I just knew I could go for it with sports, friends, and also academics. And that was the combination that really formed my life, those three things. So, Jesse, did you have any siblings growing up? You know, I didn't, but later on, okay. my mother got remarried, okay. and then I have two sisters that are 17 and 20 years younger than I am. Oh. And I was able to officiate their weddings. I just, I'm, awesome. I love my sisters. We've yeah. been able to stay close. You know, they say, oh, half sisters. It's never felt that way. And uh, even though we're spread out around the country today, we just, we're really close together. But that's tough. I think, you know, as a seven-year-old, and you don't have siblings, you know, to to go through that experience and and... And, and, and I'm not saying that you felt this, and I, and I, really, and I pray yeah. that you didn't, but a lot of kids will take the blame because I can't process why are you not getting along? Why are you not? I'm the only common denominator mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. That, yeah. that you both are. And, you know, and so a lot of kids bear the blame of that just because they don't understand it, right? And it's got to be it's because of me. Did you go through any of that as a kid? Did you struggle with that? Or were your parents pretty clear like, hey, listen, you, know, you don't bear right. any blame in this? 
Great point, Tyler. That's so common and it's easy to do. Could I have done something different? Could I have played a factor? You know, I didn't go into the deep levels of that, but I definitely sensed some of that. Uh, you know, thinking through it too, there's some times where you kind of get caught in the middle yeah. where one parent will vent or start talking or criticizing the other. And then you start to think, okay, could I fix things? What role do I play here? Do I protect one? Do I take sides? You know, how do I sort through all that? And it is overwhelming. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I had it figured out. And I, I really try to compartmentalize it, which is common. I think it's like, okay, it's a terrible part of my life. I'm just going to jam it over there, even though it's still affecting me. And uh, it wasn't until later in life, I think that I discovered a lot of healing uh, through that. Yeah. You know, in talking to you, you exude a ton of energy. Like you, you got so much joy in you. Talk, take us back to that seven-year-old Jesse. Did, did you have this same type of energy and joy in your heart then? You know, what's interesting. I was quieter growing up, kind of a little more of an introvert. I mean, I had a lot of good friends that played sports and had a wide range of friends. I didn't feel like I was in one click, but that love for people and that fulfillment in life really came with my faith. And that's when start things started to change. People are like, what's happening with you? What's going on? And, you know, I would go to the same parties and instead of drinking, now I would have more joy, but I was sober. And it's like, mm. what do you got? And uh, on the sports teams, one shift for me when regarding faith is that soccer goalkeepers, a lot of pressure. Yeah. You know, if you make one mistake, you lose one zero. Everyone knows who made the mistake. Midfielders mm. make eight mistakes, no big deal. Mm. But as a goalkeeper, you can't mess up. And I started to put too much pressure on myself. And when things in terms of faith came into my life, then sports had its right place. And it's like, it's not everything. Ultimately, it's not even my identity. My identity isn't what I do. It's who I am. And that's so easily for pro athletes. When my career tragically ended, I realized how much my identity was in sport and in my achievement. And when I wasn't able to play anymore, I had to wrestle with who am I? So um, there, there is just a lot of joy when I wake up. I've got challenges. I've got deep pain. I've been through a lot. But I feel like there's a joy that's greater than those challenges I'm, I'm facing. And I also believe that pain can be redemptive, that out of our lowest points and what we experience and learn, we can connect with other people in that shared pain and also help other people out. And I think, you know, our family, we adopted one child. We have um, three biological, four total right now. Mm. And I think some of that adoption desire because adoption is really a healing story is to know that there's a lot of kids out there without parents. And I know what that's like to kind of lose a parent in that sense through a divorce. And I just want kids to have a forever family and have parents and have that support and create that environment. So I'm always honored when I can connect with uh, a child who's gone through that, or maybe a child who doesn't have parents. And, and I really do think that some of our deepest pain in life can turn into a passion, a purpose, and that's where we can make a difference in this world. So yeah. you mentioned identity and you realized that in your college years when your faith came to the forefront. Um, how did your performance, how was that affected when you recognized that my identity is not in soccer? And it's not, and I, and I know you said you realized it more when you retired and when you were done, but how did your performance on the field how was that affected when you recognize, hey, look, I'm more than just a soccer player? 
Yeah, I think there was a security that came that I didn't have before. Because in sports so often, whether it's your playing time, your respect in the locker room, it's so linked to your performance. And that can lead to some insecurity. Of course, if you're doing well, you know, you feel really good about it, but that can lead to pride. So if you do really well, the danger is pride. If you don't do well, the danger is kind of shame and criticism. And you can ride that roller coaster. And for me, that security that, okay, I'm already accepted. I'm loved by God. And I know who I am. And because that identity, identity is a choice where you place it kind of like an anchor. And because that's solid now, now I can enjoy sport. I can, I'm more freed up and I don't put so much pressure on myself. It doesn't define me. Well, and performance doesn't define me. And so I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy the relationships more. Uh, We're on a journey together. I mean, sports is one of the greatest contexts in terms of metaphor for life. And then the bond that you have with those guys and the goal that you have and the roles and the teamwork. I mean, there's competition. You're fighting for playing time. But we still keep in touch. We still jump on Zoom. We still text each other, email, and laugh, and like we didn't miss a beat. And that bond lasts. And you look back over the years, and it's not the wins and losses that stand out. It's the relationships and the people. Yeah, yeah, and so I think true. I started to enjoy the people so much more. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that's great. Okay, so so college. What was that college experience like? You know, going through the recruiting, you know, playing at that level. Because if I hear you correctly, you didn't start really until high school, right, playing soccer? Yeah, I got a late start. Middle school is when okay, it middle school. Okay, okay. Yeah. So then made That's that, right. but but then recognize, hey, there's an opportunity for me to continue playing this game beyond just high school. What was that like for you? That's right. You know, we um, won the state championship in the Metrodome, 6,000 fans, mm-hmm. and that gave me a vision and a hunger to keep going with mm-hmm. the sport. Uh, the first time I played in Metrodome, I was scared. And in sports, you can't play scared. Right. You know, I was like, this is the place, you know, Randy Moss catches balls. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I, I was just in awe. And then senior year, it was like, no, 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 I'm not going to play timid on, on the back heels anymore. Like, we're going to go for it. We wanted a shootout. And that became like my tape, you know, in terms of making it to college and playing in that level. And like you say, when you jump up a level, everything's faster. Decision-making has to be better. You got to work on your craft, your skills, stuff like lifting weights, nutrition, off-season workouts. I mean, you eat, drink, and sleep soccer if you're playing D1. Mm -hmm. We made it, uh, we won the Ivy League uh, first time in 25 years. And that was a huge breakthrough my freshman year. And it's kind of like, you know, Cowboys, there's a big gap between when they won the mm-hmm. next Super Bowl mm-hmm. and to get that winning culture back and that championship culture. I'm grateful for our coach. He was the legend in Scotland. He played overseas and in different countries and he's won national championship here, Stanford, Notre Dame. So Bobby Clark is his name and the coach and the leaders, you know, set the culture and the culture was like family. The culture was championship. It was professional culture. And you start doing things right. And he, he's Scottish. So he would say, ah, it's the we things. And it's the little things. You do the little things right, (laughs) and that's going to add up to the big Uh, result. And and you'd also say, ah, it's a great day today, lads. And (laughs) it would be raining cold, windy in New Hampshire, but it's a great day. And that gets carried over. Uh, The culture, the attitude that the coach brought, it just went to the leaders and throughout the whole team. And so we were ready. We won the Ivy League my freshman year. My junior year, we made it to the NCAA Final Eight. We lost to Alexi Lawless uh, in Rutgers. We should have won that game. Mm. I'm almost over it. But anyways, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we had a great run. Went to Scotland together. And there was just a sense that coach got us ready if anyone was going to take the next step professionally because of what we experienced there. He just did things right. And we had a lot of fun. I mean, when you're in a team that's winning, you're laughing, you enjoy each other, you know, on the field, off the field. 
that was a special run, those four yeah. years. What school did you go to? I went to Dartmouth College Dartmouth, in New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Smart yeah. folks. Yeah, we can't spell yeah. Ivy League yeah, on this set. That was rough. So what was that transition like, leaving Minnesota and going to college? Going to, New Hampshire is a little bit different than, than Minnesota. So what was that like personally, right, socially? What was yeah. that like for you? Great question. You know, I thought I'd go to California. I applied to all the California schools. When mm. I got rejected at Stanford, it was like, what? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to California. <laughs> Dartmouth was not my top pick. But sometimes in life, like, it's not your top pick, but it's yeah. actually the, the best, best pick. Yeah. For sure. Let's just say you might growing up not liking the Cowboys, but let's say you end up there and it works out all right. Yeah, you know, it's my story. Okay. It's my story. Yeah. I hated the Cowboys yeah, growing up. So, yeah. Mine too. It's crazy. It, you know, <laughs> so, and, and it's kind of a humbling thing, but I think a lot of times the greatest stuff in life isn't planned. And when you get there, you realize like, wow, this is the best fit. And coach brought stuff out of me that other coaches probably couldn't. And again, relational, a lot of those conversations on the phone, the other coaches would just ask the basic questions. What was your SAT? You know, and just simple questions. Whereas I developed a relationship with coach. And so going to Dartmouth, like that was a no brainer because of what we built together on the phone and is a different culture. East coast is much more direct, aggressive. Uh, whereas the Midwest, you can get a little more passive and fit in the box and, you know, you just Mm -hmm. kind of abide to the rules and the East coast has a different flavor to it, but it's a great place. There's so many colleges together there. It's great rivalries. I mean, the Ivy league, um, is special too. And I just thrived across the board. Um, one big jump for me, and this is, you know, my faith journey. I grew up in a family Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors Mm. spiritually. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. (laughs) And we have, you know, a Jewish side of the family, rabbi, Catholic, ex-Catholic, atheist, agnostic. I didn't believe God existed. And I went to college, took an introduction to world religions class. I was not seeking God. I was just simply trying to knock out a distributive. We started reading the different texts and I started just having more questions. I was going to kick the tires, you know, because I was skeptical. It's like, what's Wait, the I don't, don't want to hold you up. I don't, I don't, yeah. want, I don't want to stop you there, but let's go back. Yeah. So you're saying this entire time, even when as a kid, you were agnostic or were you yeah, that's an right. atheist? I would just say God doesn't exist. No, I, I would say there was one night I was actually, my dad picked us up. And we had been drinking. It was high school and spiritual conversation. And I was just in the backseat telling them, God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. So that was my background. I, you know, had gone to a Jewish camp in the summer um, one time and I was angry at my parents. Like, why did you send me there? And, and yet the irony is I was singing all those songs for the next few months too. Right. So I was like, I, you know, my, my grandma was very devoted Catholic. She brought me once and I just felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling it. So that was my experience going into college. Here's what was tricky, though, Darren, for me is on the outside was success. Great school, grades, parties, friends, you know, sports, everything's going well. And I couldn't figure out if that's my outside story. I'm checking all those boxes. How come I don't feel better on the inside? Why does it feel like something's missing on the inside? And it just didn't compute. That was the dissonance for me that just led to some curiosity. I didn't know it would be God that, you know, be part of that, fill in that void. But, um, you know, a lot of people have two stories, like what's on the outside for social media, you know, mm-hmm. they present a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then there's what's really going on on the inside. And if you get 
get honest about what's really going on the inside, then that raises some questions sometimes. And and for me, it was hundreds of questions with a guy in the track team, first Christian I really met and talked to. His name was Mike from small town Tennessee. And I was just like, tell me about this. This doesn't make sense. You know, why does Jesus die on the cross? Have anything to do with my sins? You know, mm-hmm. and just bombarding them with the questions. And that's what I needed is to just get stuff laid out, just put it out there so I can think through it. And that was the process I was going through kind of personally and also intellectually. Was Mike able to answer all of those questions for you? He was the guy that would say, I don't know, or let me get back to you, okay. which is totally fine. I mean, you don't always have to be slick. Just be authentic and yeah. just share what you know. And he did answer a lot, though. Okay. And um, he was a guy that wasn't, you know, life of the party, wasn't a guy that was like super popular, but he was real. And, mm-hmm. and I was reading the Bible and I was reading Mike. And I was mm. just seeing what's there. Is he authentic? And mm. I just said, he's real. And I think what I'm discovering over here is some truth I've never thought about. And yeah. putting those two together, that combination was powerful. You know, that's power. What's powerful is that you just said it a minute ago. You were having a ton of success. You had a great Ivy League school. You're playing soccer. You're doing things you love. And you noticed that you were still empty. There was something yeah. still there for you. Mike brought that to you. So how much were you on fire at this point or were you just curious? Were you continuing to be curious and, and do your own research? Yeah, I kind of gave it to Heisman like, no, I'm not believing it, not believing it, not believing it. And then sophomore year, it was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Mm. And when I made that decision, I was still kind of quiet. I mean, my parents weren't thrilled about that. Uh, my own roommate didn't even know I made it. I just thought I would kind of sneak around with that decision. <laughs> and, and then I realized faith is personal and it is private, but also it's something that you can share with other people. And something changed in me where I just thought, I just want to give other people an opportunity to know because a lot of people have misperceptions about religion, right. God, it's rules, it's climbing a ladder. And it's like, no, this is grace. It's love. It's something you receive. You don't earn. And when I had like a song in my heart and I'm not musical, but just walking around campus, I wasn't tearing people down anymore. Like there was just this deep change that happened from the inside out and it came out of relationship. It wasn't rules and rituals. Mm. And I didn't even really go to church at that time, but I had discovered something in Jesus that I couldn't find anywhere else. And all of a sudden that was starting to spill out into my life. And we started an FCA. Honestly, I didn't even know the Bible, but I just shared with the other teams that we're going to start this fellowship of Christian athletes. And I went in front of the other teams and said, let's start it up. Guys came from all these other sports and they're like, okay, let's do the Bible. And I'm like, I have no idea. And they're looking at me like, let's do it. And I'm like, I can open it. Let's do it together. I have answers, but like, we can do this, you know? And so it was just an adventure. I, I was, you know, cutting my teeth in, in just what does it mean? Faith and how does it relate to life? And so um, that's what I was discovering at college. And it was just rich to have, you know, again, the academics, the athletics, to have this happening in terms of faith. And uh, I just, I'm so grateful for what happened at Dartmouth. Yeah, that's awesome. Was there anything specific that you think was the turning point, meaning that, that when it clicked in your head, was it a specific story that you heard? Was it a specific feeling you had? What, what was that? Right. One thing that stood out, C.S. Lewis said this, and he's a great thinker. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mere Christianity, Chronicles of Narnia. He said that when anyone claims to be the Messiah or the Son of God, now a lot of people have Jim Jones. That was a cult, Mm -hmm. right? That was pretty whacked. Uh, But they said, he pointed out, you have three options. They're either lying or they're a lunatic or they're the Lord. I mean, they're clearly lying and they know it. They're out of their mind or 
that's actually who they are. And for Jesus to make the bold claims like he is the resurrection, I looked at the evidence of the resurrection. Josh McDowell, you know, that was one of those books, uh, More Than a Carpenter, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. So I was looking at the evidence, the bold claims of Jesus, and I was like, I've got to decide. I can't just say he's a good teacher, a nice guy. You know, I've got to um, make a decision. And at the crux of this is the resurrection. There's no resurrection. Then it's just junk. Uh, I knew I was going to die. I kind of had this foresight. I've always been kind of visionary and I knew I'd die someday in like, what's going to happen after I die. And if someone's going to tell me they're the resurrection, then I want to know that they overcame death Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I'm seeing everyone else in their grave. Like I need to know that resurrection's real. And again, if I'm going to follow someone and commit my life, like it can't be on, well, someone else believes, or I heard this, like I got to find out for myself and I'm going to make my own decision. And that, that right there, that combination that there's a crossroads. I, I mean, I value, there's some commonalities in, in all faiths of like love your neighbor and some morality and different things. But there's also some crossroads where either Jesus is the Messiah or he isn't. And it can't be both intellectually. I mean, he is or he isn't. So you got to make a decision. And then when I made that decision, it just went beyond knowledge, like that 12 inch drop from your head to your heart. Like this is relationship yeah. and that living water that I experienced, um, you just can't fake that. And uh, so fulfilling. And so I'd never try to press, force, manipulate anything on anybody. Everyone makes their own decisions. But I, it's been said, you know, you're one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And I'm just (laughs) saying where I found that bread. And the bread doesn't cost money. Anyone can have. Red, so yeah, let's, yeah. let's let's put a pin in there for just a second because I want to come back to that, especially with what's going on in the world right now. But let's get back to your story real quick and, and, and kind of wrap that up. So you have a great career, obviously, at Dartmouth. You have this vision. You've had this vision since you were three to be a professional athlete. What did that transition look like? When did it become real that, hey, I can do this professionally? Yeah, going to Africa, signing that contract, playing for that team. I mean, Africa was an amazing experience. I had never seen poverty up close, AIDS. There were guys on our team. There was guys on the national team that were, you know, at the prime of their career or even early 20s, incredible athletes. And then they were dead a couple months later. And so we were watching that in mourning and grieving. The guy I went with, Tommy Clark, he ended up devoting his whole life to grassroots soccer, AIDS prevention in Africa. And it came out of, again, that pain that we saw. And to see the conditions they were in, we tutored on the side for students. But I realized that they could finish school and have almost no job options. Mm. And I learned so much about America while I was in Africa. Mm. And we have so many opportunities here. And I just felt for the people there that even though they had an education, the gifts, the intelligence, there just weren't opportunities for them to use those gifts. So I was seeing and processing all this and at the same time learning so much from the people in Africa, their generosity, their kindness, their hospitality. Like when you get there, you feel so loved. There is warmth, there's (laughs) a smile, there's a hug and that kind of welcome from a nation and that kind of hospitality they didn't have you know many of them didn't have the nearly the bank accounts we have but you could go to their house and they would bring out the best meat and you'd feel humbled like don't spend all the money like i shouldn't eat this you should have this and they were thrilled it was genuine they were thrilled to share it and have it and i thought man generosity and hospitality it's not about how much you have in your bank account or your home or how big your home is it's about what's in your heart all right we're going to take a quick break from this interview with pastor jesse 
uh, and and recognize some some great partners of ours. And and I want to start off with with Sleep Number. Um, really, through a lot of our journeys, both all three of us in transitioning out of the game of football. Uh, one of the things that that I think all three of us have struggled with is you just get kind of in a routine, right? You get in and you forget all of the important things that 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 took us to be at elite levels of the game. And, and the first thing I know that I abandoned was understanding recovery and, and sleep number. I wish that they had been around more prevalently when I was playing, uh, because the technology, um, the coaching, uh, just the overall excellence that that product is could have changed the game when I was playing. But even after the fact, I'm learning more and more now as I'm, as I'm working 12, 14 hour days is how important recovery is and sleep number with their, with their products, with their beds, the technology that they use, there is no better way to get a good night's rest and make the days that you have productive. Uh, Here's, here's one thing that I'll say. We went through, and we went through an experience with them, actually went into one of the stores up in North Texas, and the things that we learned, the benefits that, that we walked away with, uh, I don't think that there's anybody else out there doing that. And so we're really excited about our partnership with Sleep Number. Uh, go to your local store, jump online, sleepnumber.com, figure out what your sleep score is, uh, all the elite athletes are doing it, whether it's Greg Olson, Dak Prescott, and really the entire Dallas Cowboys uh, locker room. But see why there's so much buzz around this product because it will contribute to an incredible night's sleep, which will include to an incredible day of productivity. Go check out sleepnumber.com and go get your sleep number bed. Yeah. And I was learning so much from them. And then to play soccer there, the so skilled, so much passion. And for me, it really was a dream come true. Like we get to do this and soccer is the number one sport in the world. I, I know that's controversial. Uh, yeah, no, you can't argue it. Preach. Numbers are numbers. Yeah. You can't argue it. Preach, pastor, preach. Loaded statement, loaded statement. Mm-hmm. I didn't say it's the best sport, but let's just say yeah, There you go. It is the most popular. There you go. That is most for sure. <laughs> it doesn't have the hitting, the scoring, but anyways. Um, yeah, and, and to be able to play worldwide, I mean, we had opportunities to go to England, and that was probably next New Zealand. Uh, trying out, you know, would have been for Man U, QPR, Queen Park Rangers, Man United. So there are opportunities, but I'm still grateful I went to Africa. And what happened there to end my career was a tragedy. But those memories and being able to experience those relationships and that culture, it's still in my heart. When you go to a country and you bond, it's still in your heart, even though you don't live there and it's years later. And the people there are amazing. I'll never forget the kids just following us around and, and they would come up in packs, big groups of people. And they would say Makiwa, which just means white man. It's not derogatory. You, they just don't see many white people there. And so Makiwa kind of stands out as a novelty and they would follow us, follow me. And they would, you know, touch my hair. I had hair back then. You gotta imagine <laughs> it. Uh, they, they would, you know, just get a kick at my skin. And it was just this incredible, almost surreal experience and this bonding and, and the love that's there in Africa. So, yeah, I hold Africa close to my heart. Yeah. So you mentioned there was a tragedy uh, mm. at some point. Walk us through that tragedy. Yeah, I went to, again, Zimbabwe, where there's a lot of malaria, and I had a prescribed medication to prevent malaria. 
And every week I'd take this medication. It built up toxic levels in my system over the course of a season, many months. And I didn't know at the time and the doctors didn't know. All I noticed is that my heart rate would just start elevating to like 160 beats a minute while I was sitting still. And then cardiologists found atrial flutter and heart murmur and skip beats and pain in the left side of my chest. I started to have migraine headaches and I never have headaches. And these migraine headaches couldn't handle any light, any noise, uh, fatigue, double vision, uh, sweats and chills. My body temperature was out of control, crazy dreams. I started to have uh, panic attacks. There was waves of depression. I just never had this before. And the doctors in Zimbabwe didn't know what it was. And they sent me back to America when the decline started. And we paid out of pocket, went to Stanford. The doctor listed 10 things it could be. One of them was a medication and side effects. And I just knew in my heart that that's what the cause was. And uh, this was a really key decision because you're supposed to keep taking the drug for a month after you return to the States. And the doctors all told me to keep taking it because if I get malaria on top of this illness, I'm not going to live. They told me to keep taking it. And other people, well-intentioned, told me to keep taking it. But I prayed in that still small voice that listened to God. And I felt like the clear answer was don't take it. Well, I didn't take it for that month. We sent my blood to the center of disease control. And in their test, they confirmed toxic levels of the drug. If mm. I would have kept taking mm. it for another month, mm. I probably wouldn't be here on the podcast today. Wow. Oh my and, and as a result, I mean, I was fighting for my life for a year and it took 10 years to fully recover. And for someone, you know, in their twenties, that's when you expect to be. Mm-hmm. And I was always, I always had that sense, like, you know, as an athlete, I'm in top shape, my mind's wow. sharp. And so to suddenly be fighting for some of my sanity and the emotions and physically not knowing if I was going to live, um, not only that, but my career ended, I'm moving back in with my parents. Mm-hmm. I never expected that, you know, down in the basement and uh, all my friends weren't there. It was like this intensive rebuilding of my life. And there are so many things, good things that came out of it. One of the worst times in my life, but a lot of shifts. And, um, you know, I could highlight a couple of them. I started writing down 10 things I'm thankful for every day, because if you ever lose a lot in life, it's easy to overfocus on that and forget what you still have. Also, I started to chart over the course of a year. If you have a long-term recovery, you don't always feel like you're making progress. So I, I wrote a chart out so I could celebrate. I can walk 10 more minutes now than I could a few months ago without my heart, you know, beating too fast. And so that progress was very gradual. I started to let people in. This is one of the biggest because in my family, the culture was more of perseverance. And if life was hard, I would just do better in grades and sports. And now there was nothing to do. There was no way to microwave and speed up the recovery. And my only coping was, you know, try harder, persevere. And that's good in some contexts, but that wasn't going to work here. And so it was new for me to let people in to some of the ugliness, the pain, instead of being in denial and saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, to let some trusted people in to that and learn how to grieve and mourn, and also to let God into that. Because I thought God only is interested in the parts of my life that are going well and the Mm. things I do well. I didn't know he cares that much about suffering. I didn't know he could take some of those burdens. My prayers were shallow, more intellectual. Now I'm learning how to pour up my heart to God, give him some of the stress I can't carry. And uh, that was part of the healing process to let people in. 
and, and with the identity, you know, continuing to shift and really ministry was never on my radar. Never thought I'd be a pastor, if you ask me. And that started to redirect. I started to serve as I had health volunteer at a mm. church. And don't despise small beginnings because you start to do one thing or help someone do something that looks small. You never know where that's going to go. And for me, that first step was just volunteering with junior high kids at church. It's hard to steer a parked car. That was the first movement. And uh, I didn't even know where that would lead to. But those were some of the shifts that were happening. Uh, Just brutal in terms of what that time in my life looked like. And just rattled, tested to the core. Yeah. And and I, I, there was one thing Jesus said that stood out to me then, that if you stick with him, you know, you listen to him and, and follow him, do what he says, your house will be like a house on the rock, not the sand. And I just thought, man, my house is on the sand right now. And, yeah. and I don't know what it's going to take, but I want that, a house on the rock. And, yeah. and that was really the deep rebuilding process that started through the pain. You know, we, we talk about just about every episode, how it all leads back to service of others. Yes. When, when you're in a time of trial, when, when things are going wrong, just find somebody to serve. I, I'm curious your perspective in that moment. Why was service of others, despite what you were going through, why was that so crucial for you? I'm so, so good. That theme is so great. In this podcast, you guys do a tremendous job together as a team too, and highlighting service, celebrating service. It's easy in our culture to be self-consumed. There's so many traps there. And ultimately, you know, what is our view of ourself? I think two traps to stay out of are either inflated or deflated. You know, inflated is when someone's full of themselves. They just want to talk about themselves. want everyone else to talk about them. Like, enough of me. How about you? What do you think of me? (laughs) It's like, okay, we we know that. And then there's a deflated. Like, yeah, I'm not gifted. I'm not loved. I don't have much purpose. It's like, oh, no, that's not true. And and so to find a healthy place of self where you love other people and like you love yourself and and then to step out of, because we get caught in our own heads. We get wrapped up in ourselves. And when you serve, you come alive. Now there's a part of serving that's difficult. I mean, parenting is all about serving. Like it's not that much fun to wake up at three and change a diaper. Right. So we don't, we don't need to glamorize serving. I, I mean, there are times when, you know, they say everyone likes to applaud serving until you actually serve. (laughs) And and, and then it's like, wait a second, there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of like, I'm less of me, you know, more the other person. So there's a part of serving that's dying to self, but that's actually when you discover and come most alive. That's the paradox. And I think, you know, we are made to serve. I believe that God lays opportunities in our path ahead of time. And we step into those opportunities, whether it's a podcast, whether it's parenting, whether it's a stranger that you walk by and you give an encouraging word or you say, hey, they're begging for food. Let me take you out to lunch. I mean, every day is loaded with opportunities. Some are formal. Some are just spontaneous and informal. But when you have a heart to serve, I mean, that's why I'm so excited to wake up in the morning because I know that like there's going to be some great things that happen today and lives are going to change today. And I get to be a part of that. And, and, and man, that's so fulfilling in life. And um, athletes have incredible platforms. I mean, you know, Darren, because of your career, you have a podcast where so many people listen to your voice and they listen to people who come on and they hang on your every word in the community in Dallas. I mean, you're long-term consistent and the respect you earned in the platform that athletes have is phenomenal. I mean, what a gift. 
And so let's not sleep on that platform, minimize that, belittle that. No, let's step into it. And that's why I love seeing athletes who, after their career's over, because there is a morning when you don't have the locker room, you don't have the press, you don't have the stadium, you don't have all those things, then how do you respond, you know, beyond the game? And I've seen athletes that are so fulfilled because they've discovered serving and they've discovered a difference they can make. And there is a greater joy than just scoring the touchdown or, Mm -hmm. you know, the big sack or the big interception. There's a greater joy in life and, and sports are awesome, but they have a ceiling and serving. The ceiling is so much higher. Well, and you mentioned it in in your travels in in playing in Zimbabwe. And and if, if you've ever been on a missions trip and you've been to some of these third world countries that struggle with poverty, at our simplest form, when we have no material possessions, the greatest joy comes from serving. And like you said, that's what we were created to do. That's what God created us to do is to serve, is to work, especially as man, like to work and to serve. And it's, and it's crazy to me. And, and like you said, our culture has been so conditioned, so yeah. conditioned to self-serve, to get ourselves. And it, it's like, like you said, like it's hard to serve. And it's unfortunate that it's that way. Like we are, we as a culture are missing out on so much joy because it's, it's an obligation as opposed yeah. to an opportunity to serve. Mm-hmm. Because I just think we were in, and I've, I think I've shared this story is, is my wife and I, we went on a trip to, to Guatemala city and there's extreme poverty. And yeah. we, we visited this, this area of the city that, uh, literally like they built shanties on top of trash. This like Canyon was full of trash and they built these shanties because they were squatting on the land and they, it became new land that nobody claimed. And so they, they owned it. Right. But had nothing. They dig through trash for food. We go in and literally like this family, the, they had a half a banana and it was like the, the peel had been opened and it, you could tell it had been out a little bit. They like, these strangers walk into this little shanty and they were so excited to give us literally the food that their family was going to live on for the next two days until they found something else in the trash Mm -hmm. that that this poor city had dumped into this pit. And all they wanted to do was give it to us. They don't know us. I mean, how many Americans would you think would be like, okay, everything that I have, like everything of value that I have, I want to give to you. Right. Like, yeah, that's rough. And, and, and you could just see the joy. And, and I agree, like to be a part of it, to wake up every day, like you mentioned and say, Hey, look, I can, I can serve somebody. I can make a change. And I can just, I can witness it. I can be a part of it. Like that's, that's what we're created to do. And I just feel like everything is so blurred because mm-hmm. of, because of how good we have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's so a powerful hard. story. I mean, and to much whom is given, much is required. There's mm-hmm. a sense of responsibility yeah. with, with mm-hmm. what we've been given. But that it's an initial kind of tease because it does feel good for a little while to go me, 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 right now, what I want. And I'm not going to lie, like that feels good. But if you continue down that road, like again, the ceiling's low and it just turns into something kind of wretched, mm, <laughs> kind of empty, yeah, kind of right. hollow. And it's like, man, if all you're living for is yourself, like it's time for a new vision. It's that's time for right. a greater vision. <laughs> and and then that's actually when you find yourself is yeah. when you are setting other people up for success and you're helping other people. That's when you discover your gifts and your purpose. And that's the faith step is to say, okay, I'm going to, focus on myself a little less here and seeing poverty firsthand, it changes you. Mm. When you go overseas and see that, you don't forget that. 
And then that changes how you want to sponsor children. That changes how you want to handle your money. That changes, you know, the difference you're going to make and just let it break your heart. Sometimes we don't move until our hearts. Oh man, that's strong. That's really and, strong. And so let it yeah. break your heart. You, yeah. you don't sports. We always have to be strong and yeah. like, you know, impress people. It's like, no, you yeah. don't have to impress people. You can have compassion. You can let it break your heart. And then out of that, something strong is going to yeah. come. Yeah. And uh, Man, that, that was... that's what's happened in my life too. And so you, so you get involved by serving first, but there's a, obviously a gap between, Hey, I'm going to show up and serve a few times. And now I'm the pastor of this, yeah. <laughs> this community. What, what, what happened there? And, and on top of that, at what point did you meet your wife in this process? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Let's get some romance. In there right. we go. Come on. Here, here we go. Here we go. Guys, take some notes. How I got my wife. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I ended up unexpected. I was watching these pastors thinking, I'm not like them. I don't think I can do that. And, and I'll tell you, it's good to have mentors, but at some point you got to spread your wings and just be you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how I'd fit into ministry and what's my role. So it ended up, I was a college pastor, University of Iowa, and I was reaching people just like me coming in kind of curious, some misperceptions about God and just having conversations. And we saw the group go from about 20 to 800 and it was just something special mm -hmm. on campus. And in the middle of that, uh, that's where I met my wife. She was working at a camp. She came to recruit for, uh, it was looking for summer counselors, college students. She came to our group and set up a table. And suddenly, like, I got really helpful at the end of the night. I just felt like serving. You <laughs> it's know? weird. It was crazy. crazy. <laughs> Spending some time. Hey, can I fold that yeah. table up for you? You done with that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it didn't fool the people who knew me well. They're like, I know exactly what, what he's doing. doing. <laughs> they saw through the whole thing. They saw through my motives. So the corny line, you know, she came to recruit some college counselors. I ended up recruiting her. But, but I got to tell you, I took a risk and I shot out an email because I knew someone who knew her. And I was like, I got to get her email. Didn't ask her directly but got it the next day, sent her an email. And because she was traveling, she just wasn't checking email. Uh, and so it was days of waiting. And I thought, oh no, maybe I put her in a terribly awkward spot. Cause like, how do you say no thanks pastor? Right. <laughs> not, not taking your stuff. Yeah. You know, how do you say no to the pastor who asked me you know, to hang out? Uh, or she's just super spiritual. She's praying, she's fasting or right, something. But right. she was just traveling. And then when she gave me her phone number, I was just like, yeah. And, nice. and when I met Lori, you know, I didn't have to overanalyze, overthink it. It was just this joy, kind of a peace again. And we both had that sense early on, which is great because sometimes someone feels it before someone else. But we, um, you know, when we got married in Iowa, it was just a massive celebration. It was the end of the time in Iowa. And then I came to the West Coast to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of change. I sold my place, got married, you know, changed job, changed states. On the stress test, like that's too many points. But yeah. sometimes, you know, when you're you're in love, you just say yes. Yeah, so you just roll with it. Then yeah. I got I got <laughs> I got a road dog with me. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. So, the, the main stuff is in place. So let's go. Right. And uh, I was excited to come to the West Coast. It was it was a new season. So and, what took you to Seattle? What was it that that brought you there? You and Lori. Yeah, you know, after spending some time in California. And it wasn't something, again, we were seeking out intentionally. We were right in the middle of the adoption process. We actually had to wait six more months. The church up here just felt like you're the guy and we'll wait the six months. 
And Lori and I were so connected in California. Initially, she was just like, no. And then she actually had a dream and, and God spoke to her and her heart changed. And she was like, yeah, we do need to go to Seattle. Seattle is a unique city. We have the second most de-churched in the nation. And that means a lot of people have had experiences at church that weren't great. And not only that, the eighth highest unchurched, there's millions of people who don't follow Jesus. But for me, I'm energized by that environment because I know what that's like to have all the doubts and to just feel like faith doesn't make sense and to want to think through and talk through things and, and that refreshment and restoration that can come. Uh, we've enjoyed Seattle a lot. Um, we won't get into the Seahawks, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, pray for Russell Wilson's finger, yes, but that's another say. one. Um, but Seattle's been a great fit. You know, Seattle Sounders partnered with them on a faith and family night, uh, doing a lot around the city. We started something here. Unity is a big deal for me. And, you know, in our church, we really have changed and we become multicultural, multi-ethnic. We look much more like our neighborhood. And I say, we look more like heaven now, Mm. and it's so much more rich and enjoyable. That's been a big change. Another one is looking around Seattle and seeing it be very fragmented and a lot of pockets and sometimes a lack of trust. And this is even within the faith community. So let's bring people together, churches together, ministries together. And there's about a hundred now that are united. We just had an event called Serve Our City, where we brought many different groups and a college soccer team, Bellevue Men's College Soccer, uh, joined us. And we had a lot of projects around the city. So let's do things to unite. Let's Mm -hmm. do things that are positive. Let's do things to serve. You know, when a pandemic hits, a lot of people, it's easy to just go into isolation, and fear takes over, frustration takes over, division kicks in. There's so many polarizing topics. And sometimes we forget that we can disagree about some stuff and still love each other. We can disagree and still lock arms. We can disagree and still love our neighbors. And we can look beyond just the hot topic of the day. You know, should you be vaccinated or not? And how soon? Or should you wear a mask or not? I mean, this is dividing families. This is dividing marriages. Like, let's not fall for that trap. Let's make unity. Let's make love the goal. And let's use it, make a difference and use our gifts and talents together. So that's the positivity, I think. I believe that some of the greatest things can happen in the biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. And, and in my life, some of the greatest experiences come out of the worst situations. So when there's a really difficult situation, I'm looking for where's that evidence of grace? Where's that redemptive peace? Where's that opportunity? And I believe in the middle of a crisis, there's the greatest opportunity that's for us right now. Not to mention the mm-hmm. days we're living in with technology, yeah, with yeah. podcasts, with um, you know social media. You can waste four hours just staring at everyone's photos, or you can use a podcast or platform to inspire incredible amounts of people. I mean, with this podcast, you're reaching probably hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. and you know, you're doing it in other nations, you're touching lives, you're sharing stories, stories are powerful. And you're, you know, really stewarding stories and relationships and people to lead to incredible things that you won't even see this side of heaven. And that's the beauty of the time we're living in. You didn't have that 20 years ago, you didn't have that 100 years ago. What an opportunity today. There is just so much at our fingertips and we got to make the most of the opportunities. Gosh, man, I love that. So I've got a question for you and you talk about opportunity and the times that we're in. And and I'm going to I'm going to ask for a specific group. What is your hope with the times that we're at right now that that you hope the church can 
can maybe shift what it has done in the past, right? Maybe look, Hey, the opportunity is here. Like God's created this for us. Let's go take advantage of it. What is that for you that you think the church can do in our culture? It's a great question. You know, I think faith has been compartmentalized too often to one hour, one day, one place. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's got to be 24 seven. There's got to be authenticity. It's got to be the same person in public and private. It's got to look at the home and it's got to be in the church. And I think if we can start to have homes that are healthy, I mean, just start with families where we love each other. We care for each other. We're united and we get rid of the hatred. You know, there's got to be healing in the families. And as that happens, it's going to change the culture. I believe where we live, work, learn, or play, that's where we want to bring that love and that light. And I think it looks far beyond the walls of the church. I I love it that World Vision is tackling, and they're about 10 minutes away from our church. We partner on so many different things. I love it that they're tackling this enormous mountain of trying to bring clean water to every child and every person around the world because so many people (laughs) don't have clean water and are dying every day. So now on track for 2030 to provide clean water for every person in the world. So our church, we said, let's play a part in this. And it was a half marathon, and we had over 100 people you know, participating in that, raising money for that. And then to see thousands out of that are now going to have clean water for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's amazing. That doesn't cost much money in terms of American dollars to provide that for someone for the rest of their life. And I think when people realize that the church can be kind of like a sleeping giant that just needs to wake up. And if we see the needs, and that could be in foster care. You know, that's where we adopted is out of foster care. If one family in every church adopted out of foster care, we wouldn't need a foster care system anymore. Mm. I mean, isn't that special that in our lifetime, we could see clean water for everyone. We could see every child that's in the foster care system have a forever family. All it takes is, I think it starts with prayer and saying, God, what do you want me to do? What's my lane? Like, let me run my race well, and then collaborate. Find some other people, some other organizations, come together, because it's not just going to be one person, but you got to start with yourself and say, what has my name on it? What's my assignment? What have I been given? What are the passions I have? I like to think about, you know, in talking to people to discover this, like, what are your greatest gifts? What are your burdens in a good way? Who do you really want to help? What difference can you make? Uh, Where have you seen fruit in your life? If money was no issue, if you had $100 million dollars, what would you do with your time? Or at the end of your life, looking back, what do you want to be said at your funeral or on your tombstone? You know, what do you want to be said of your life? And if you start thinking through some of those deep questions, just slow down, take a day, take a week, write some stuff down, identify it. We need clarity. And what I pray for people, three C's, I pray for clarity and then courage and compassion. Because we need clarity to say no to a lot of things. The good stuff gets in the way of the best stuff. And then we need courage because you're going to blaze a new trail. You're going to risk. You're going to take some criticism, even if you're helping people. It's amazing how much shade gets thrown at you. And then compassion. Do it in love. Do it in love. Love people well. And if you walk in those things, you're going to end up having a legacy that's far greater than what you anticipate. And just stay steady from day to day. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So today, what is it? And then just savor it. Like I, before this podcast, I, you know, I was thinking, oh, this looks like fun. Um, but like, man, I'm talking to a guy that should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, uh, just a lot of respect uh, for your career, Darren. 
And you know, oh, you're talking about Darren. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry. I got I got sidetracked. I got you're confused. talking about me. Yeah, sorry. Just, there's no hey, pastor. There's no confusion there. You're right. Yeah, that's it. yeah, Darren. I like how you're positioned in the back, and these two just take the front. You yeah. Know? Wow. And you take over and I no, he's literally sitting in the same level. He's just that little. So. <laughs> I'm not buying it, man. He, he, people, he's, he's covering passes and runs. Not many safety cover it like that. But you know, I gotta say, Dallas Cowboys. When I started to see Dion and Emmett and Michael Irvin, it's like, what? They're turning to Jesus? Like yeah. that? That had a big impact on me. I was like, that caught my attention. And Tom Landry, I gotta just throw this story in there. So I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Spent four years in Dallas. Yeah. And Tom Landry's on the board. And yeah. Tom Landry's class act. He's one of those guys that you know his character. It speaks so loud, his words don't even have to say much. And I mean, man, wouldn't that be great if it's true of all of our lives? Like our character and how we treat people speaks so loud that our words just kind of quietly back that up. And Tom Landry, he's on the board. I'm in seminary. And Tom Landry's walking across campus. Never met him before. You know, here he is, two Super Bowl champs, like over 25 years as coach. And this legend is coming my direction. And I'm realizing, like, he's coming right for me. And, And again, I've never met this guy before. And I'm just thinking, like, this is my moment. Like, what do I say? And he walks up right next to me and in his, you know, he's got that gentle tone, but he just said, sir, he said, where's the bathroom? <laughs> said, uh. and, and I guided him to the bathroom. So that was my you did your job. Well done. That's all I got right there. All right. We're going to take another break from pastor Jesse and uh, something that we've been talking about a lot on the show for quite some time now, because we really believe how great of a place this is. I'm talking about Choctaw Casino and Resort up in Durant, Oklahoma. Listen, we made an intentional decision here at the Darren Woodson Show is that when we brought on partners, we wholeheartedly needed to believe in their product, the things that they were doing. Um, one of the things that drew us to Choctaw Casino and Resort was just the history that they have. Um, moving to Oklahoma in 1832, um, and building this tribe and building uh, this nation that gave back to their community and they were using the resources that they earned and every dollar was going back to their people and and really understanding the history, understanding what they're doing in Oklahoma for Choctaw Nation and, and their people, it's incredible. Um, they do it by creating an incredible experience for anybody that is that is willing to drive up the 75 north of the Red River in Durant, Oklahoma. They have a Vegas-quality resort right an hour outside of Dallas. They have steakhouses. They have five-star restaurants. Guy Fieri has a restaurant there. Um, They have a music venue that has some of the best music acts around. If they come to Dallas, they go to Choctaw. I mean, whether it's Carrie Underwood, Tim McGraw, Whiskey Myers, um, uh, I'm blanking here. I mean, Aaron Watson, our guy there. Um, I mean, if you like 80s music, they've got 80s bands. They've got any, but anything and everything that you could ever want to see in an incredible music venue there. They've got Vegas-style pools, adult pools, kid pools. There's something to do for the entire family. So I'm, I'm encouraging you, go up, take some R&R, get, get a break, eat some great food, have some fun. Play on this, play on slots, 3,500 new slots in a brand new casino that was just finished this August. And something I promise you is not replicated anywhere, anywhere in Texas or, you know, the middle of the United States. So again, head up Choctaw Casino and Resort. You will not be sorry. Now back to the show. 
but I just say he's a guy that um, when I think of class, Dallas Cowboys character, you know, bigger than the sport, you know, the relationships, the legacy you live, like, man, that's, that's powerful right yeah. there. And, and you don't I have guess, to be loud. You yeah. don't have to be the extrovert. You don't have to, you, you just walk the walk. That's going to be strong. And that was my next question to you is what, what is your style? Because we, we, we're here in the Bible belt. Uh, of yeah. you know, and there's a whole bunch of styles. There's the theologian, who's a teacher. There's that fire and brimstone. What is the your snake style? charmer? That snake charmer. <laughs> that's West Texas. Yeah, oh yeah, that's yeah. West that's right. The snake charmers. <laughs> you see it all there. You really do. And you know what you guys have that we don't have in Seattle as much is you've kind of got this group of people that go just because it's tradition, yes. or maybe they make some business contacts, mm-hmm. or you get some respect see in seattle if you go to church you don't get respect for that yeah you're, <laughs> you're seen as an you're all in like yeah you're all in so you're here because you want to be yes. here you're here because so it's a different vibe than, than the bible belt but you know when i was in dallas i went to uh concord uh and that was in south oak cliff yep. dr ek bailey mm-hmm. and he was the guy who just set the tone for me in ministry and it was a unique setting because i mean four years there in most weekends i was the only white guy in a pretty big church and yet I felt, again, so loved and accepted. And man, I have no idea what it's like to be a minority in America, but I would just experience it, you know, for one hour. And I thought that's in a positive environment. Mm. And, and I was, you know, just feeling kind of self-conscious or just, you know, it, it was it was a challenge for me. Um, and, and so I learned so much there. And yeah, there's a lot I could talk about, about the need we have for racial reconciliation and um, just the desire I have for that. But with E.K. Bailey, what I saw there was I saw passion and I saw authenticity and I saw um, this clear communication. And, and he could take the Bible and he'd bring it with authenticity um, and there was passion that was there. And my only church experience for that was Presbyterians, which mm. was kind of reserved. And, yeah. and so here I am stepping into this celebration yeah. and I'm sensing this passion. And it's just like, it just felt so alive there. And and I had to learn, you know, some of the nuances, like when you agree, two-way conversation in that context. In a Presbyterian <laughs> church, you're not talking to the pastor. You're not right. talking to the preacher. Yeah. But there is a lot of back and forth. So Amen, pastor. Preacher. Yeah. Preach, preacher. Yeah. Amen. Preach, preacher. And, and then also, if you are like feeling it, you're agreeing, you stand up. And yeah. so, man, that was new for me, but I just started standing up when it was time. It was hooping and bringing it home. It's like, it's time to stand up. And uh, th- there was one moment in seminary where we had um, – a, a white teacher and it, the, it was the end of the semester. And one of the guys in the, in the class was black and he stood up as the teacher, you know, was just bringing it. And it was the end of the semester last class. And, and he stands up and, and the teacher asked, well, why are you standing up James? Like, do you need something? And he said, no, he said, in my culture, he said, when, when you're bringing it, I stand up. And, and then the teacher said, you mean you haven't stood up all semester? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So we have some fun with that. That's good. Oh. Yeah, just I miss it. In some ways, you know, that really was my favorite church. And yeah. he went to be with the Lord early, died of mm-hmm. cancer. Tony yep. Evans was the other guy. Absolutely. I was just going to say Oak Cliff yeah. Bible, man. That's mm-hmm. that. That's still like in my wife and kids. That's one yeah. of the most memorable Absolutely. church services we've gone to. And, and Jonathan Evans was our 
was was our chaplain when I was here for the Cowboys. But but Mm -hmm. Dr. Evans is actually who I mean, I grew up going to the church, going to church. And but Dr. Evans is who actually brought me back to faith. Right. And and it was at a conference in, in 2012. But yeah, going to Oak Cliff yeah. and the same deal. Like I was like, yeah. all right, like yeah. I mean, I, I've got I'm my white, I've got yeah. my white boy rhythm, right? And, and I'm like, hey, and I, at one point I was like, hey, babe, they've been singing the same song for 27 minutes. <laughs> like it's literally they haven't gone to another song yet. They're the remix version. <laughs> yeah. The remix. It was, it was just, <laughs> but it was just, oh, it was amazing. But like you're right, the energy, right, and the interaction, yeah. and oh man, it was. You just Boys. walked out of there just feeling alive. And then you go to Salina Baptist and everybody's just kind of oh standing there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it oh, it's it. hard to go back. It's hard to go back, man. It's hard to turn it down, turn it off. Oh, it's it's really hard. So, so Pastor, his daughter Priscilla was in seminary yeah, with me too. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, with faith and when you're around, you don't have to. And there's a lot of different backgrounds. And respect everyone who's listening and watching. I'll tell you, almost everyone can pick up on authenticity and and the youngest generation picks it up. You don't have to follow Jesus to know sometimes what's authentic and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And man, when you do find something that is authentic, then, I mean, that's where you want to be because it is twisted and weird in a lot of places. And there are just a lot of churches in America where it's legalism and it's, you know, false teaching. And so my family, I, I don't just say go to church. I say, well, which church are you going to? What, yeah. Let me check out the website because <laughs> right. we got to be discerning. We really yeah. do. Yeah. That's so, the truth. So what are you seeing? I mean, looking into the future right now and, and seeing a lot of young members in your congregation, what is your approach now? Are you approaching the younger uh, congregation a little differently than the ones that you've had, you know, if you've been preaching to for a long time? Yeah, great question. And we really have a multi-generational church here, which is more difficult. It's easier just to let the church stick with all the traditions yep. and you know, let the 60-year-old committees, you know, have the final say and don't listen to the young voice. And then there's also kind of the hipster, younger churches where they struggle to bring in the older generation. Mm-hmm. And it's just easy to do one or the other you know, talking about repetition in songs. I mean, it's fun and we laugh about it, but in some cultures, I mean, that repetition is where it sinks in and Mm. you don't just say it and think it, but you feel it and you enter in, you might even move with it. And then you remember it and you're singing it during the week. Well, for other cultures, it's like repetition. They're just like, I got it the first two times we sang it. Like, why do we need to keep saying it? I already understand it. Well, it's not just cognitive. Like something's happening in the soul when you're doing that. Volume's another classic one. You know, the ones who are 55 and older, (laughs) they're coming up to sound booth. Like, can we turn Turn that that thing down? down. (laughs) Oh, and and the younger ones, they walk into a quiet room and they're just like, this is boring. This is kind of passive. Like, this is kind of sleepy. Like, are we this way about our faith? Like, man, like I want to feel that base right here, you know? Mm -hmm. So trying to bridge those, uh, what I say is we've got to be thinking about value in everyone, but we can't ignore the younger generation. When you look at the statistics right now, in terms of faith in America, there are some things happening that are pretty eye-opening. Like the majority of America is not part of a church or any kind of place of worship right now. First time ever in our history. You look at the youngest generation and the numbers are so much lower. So when things aren't working, don't just keep doing the same things and expect things to change, right? right? So I think 
it's got to be um, instead of just come, come to the building, come to the program. It's got to be go serve, build relationships. Yes. And I think the younger generation isn't looking for canned and slick. They're not looking yeah. for tight programs or just the coolest, latest thing. They're looking for authenticity. Yes. They're looking for connection. Yeah. And you got to meet them where they're at. They're on their phones. That's right. where they're spending eight hours a day. Yeah. So you got to meet them there on social media or a podcast or a website. Like you got to speak their language. And I think they want to be part of a movement. I think they want the close connection with, with um, community that's close. A lot of them are growing up in families that are divided, um, a lot of pain in families. So they want to experience a church family where there's closeness and community, but they also want to be part of something bigger themselves. They know we need a movement in right. America. I yeah. think they know we need some real change and they want to be a part of it. And they're young enough to go for it. Radical, what would be ideal Things can change. Things can improve. And I love that. That's where I get energized by working with younger people. Sometimes as we get older, we just get stuck. You know, we go to the same service, sit in the same chair. We don't invite anybody. And long-term Christians, they end up just hanging out with Christians only. And they think like, that's a picture of spiritual maturity. Like, no, Jesus was out like loving everybody, loving your neighbor. There's a lot of traps that happen and sometimes they're unintentional. And instead of judging each other um, and trying to point a finger and say, oh, you're less spiritual because you like that. What are we doing? No, we're going to unite. We're going to value all generations and we've got to listen to, and we're going to learn so much from the youngest generation. They are teaching us. And so it's, it's a two way conversation. Yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about right now speaks to me. and, And, and I think another thing COVID did is it gave people a time to pause. You know, we literally couldn't go to church for that time Mm. there. And getting personal for a second, for me, I grew up in the church. My parents were missionaries. I went to a Christian university. It was something I always did. I never, you know, if we were out of town on the weekends, we would find a church, we would go. That's just something that we did. Mm -hmm. Well, COVID was really the first time in my life that I took a step back and I wasn't attending. And just being completely honest with you, I'm now in a phase where I'm starting to think, okay, well, what is this whole faith thing? What is this whole religion thing? Is this yeah. something that I'm really, you know, my faith growing up was my parents' faith. Mm-hmm. And now COVID gave me a time to sit back. What do I really believe? What am yeah. I really, really after? You know, what really is important to me? And so these yeah. are all the questions swirling around in my head and just trying to discover or figure yeah. out, is this Man. real? Is this legit? What's going on? So what's your encouragement? To, because you talked about, de-churching, and, and, and I understand yeah. it for people that never went to church, but what about people like me? I did right. grow up in church, and now I'm having yeah. these doubts. What, what do you tell somebody like me? First, I'm going to com- commend you on your transparency and vulnerability. Like, this is what we need is just real conversations. We mm. got to get real, including faith and just where we're at, doubts, you know. Doubts can lead to sometimes some of the greatest growth and discoveries. And what I've seen is that there were trends before COVID, and the trends in America where in terms of church attendance, now not necessarily Texas, but nationwide, uh, followers of Jesus were going 1.5 weekends during the whole month. That was the average. Mm-hmm. So church attendance was on a pretty rapid decline before COVID hit. And I think a lot of people, like you said, it was just tradition or they they weren't owning their faith as much. And, you know, it can be pretty appealing to work out, sleep in. And when COVID came, it's like, wow, instead of church becoming four hours where you got to, you know, some people get dressed up, they drive away. And then afterwards, one person in the family talks, everyone else wants to get to lunch, but one person keeps talking, you know, it's five (laughs) hours. and, And they're like, wait a second. Like I can just roll out of bed in my pajamas, watch 
for 50 minutes and I'm good. Now I'm mm-hmm. like ready to turn on the game, you know? So yeah. I think a lot of people kind of tasted a freedom with it. And it's like, wait, why am I going? What's, mm-hmm. what's in there? What mm-hmm. do I value? And I think COVID just accelerated some realities that were there. And I think you can't survive on other people's faith. It's just your parents or your spouse or a friend, like trying to wrestle through that. And for a lot of people that had more religion than relationship, and I'll tell you, religion and rules and rituals by themselves just aren't compelling. And so it's that connection with God. And, and I think that for a lot of people, they're discovering that they need God and also they enjoy God. And then it's like God actually is improving and working in the different parts of my life. And so now it's, I like the word abide. That's been a word we've chosen in our church is abide, which just means closeness, trust, and that abiding, it's a picture of fruit growing from the vine. There's going to be great fruit. And when you abide in your life, there's going to be great fruit. And you can abide where you live, work, learn, or play. And so I think a lot of people are discovering that. And what churches have learned is it can't be program-based. Because for so many churches, it was the program, the program, the program. COVID hit. Now the programs aren't there. What do we still have? Mm. And it's got to be equipping. It's got to be empowering. The classic, you know, kind of scorecard, because scorecards are huge. Um, for a lot of churches, a scorecard is how many people came and what's the budget? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but you got to have a much more exciting vision than that. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of people, it was just like attend, give, I don't know, maybe serve once in a while. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not going to be fulfilling and satisfying. So COVID did a favor in some ways. I mean, don't waste a good crisis. It, it kind of challenged our status quo and it exposed some trends and it helps us to pause and think through. And I think ultimately go deeper. And that's what I hear in your voice. It's like, okay, I've been doing this. Um, I am now thinking deeper deeper questions. And what I've always seen is that when I go deep, God will meet me there. Mm -hmm. And if I'm in pain, God will meet me there. If I'm doubting, God will meet me there. And if I get honest with God and he's not going to be surprised, he already knows what I'm thinking and feeling. It's not like he's going to go, Oh, I'm shocked. Really? All this time. Uh, So I'm not going to surprise him. But when I go deeper, he's going to meet me there with love and with truth. And ultimately it's relationship, not religion. And I think in America, we've got to peel away a lot of layers of religion and sometimes tradition because we've suffocated kind of the life-giving relationship part of it. Yeah, yeah that's good. No, that's, that's good. Right. Uh, so I've got a question, and this is this is something that I, I struggle with in in my faith and in, in my role in the community is, like, we're supposed to be a reflection of Jesus' love to others, right? We're supposed to love other people. We're supposed to accept other people. We're supposed to... Uh, to serve other people. At what point, though, is it, okay, hey, I've got to take a stance, yes. uh, especially right now, right? And, and, and there's so many controversial issues, and there's so many, and it's like, pick one side or the other. I, I, unfor- I don't want to say unfortunately. I tend to just like, okay, look, I, I, look, I see both sides. I love you. I, I mean, I'm not judging you. Like, you do what you want. But at what point do you say, okay, hey, look, I, I've got to take a stand in my in my beliefs, in my faith, in my convictions, in in what I, I want to do for my kids? I mean, what's your what's your thoughts on on where we are supposed to align with that? Yeah, motives are important, 
And I would say check to make sure that it's coming out of a place of love, Mm -hmm. that you love other people, that you're doing this in love. You want the best for other people Mm -hmm. because it's easy to do it out of anger, out of frustration, sometimes out of pride. Make sure there's both love and truth. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus was, full of both love and truth. And there's a lot of people who have truth and they don't have much love. So even if you're going to bring truth, which is good, make sure it's in love. I absolutely think we need a backbone. I absolutely think we need to stand up. We can't be discouraged, silent, despair. Let's go back to Rosa Parks. I mean, she had seen mm-hmm. the scene on the bus so it's many nice. times, yeah. knew it was wrong deep down. And was she going to take a lot of heat? Yes, but it was time. And I think, you know, when your name's on it and it could be in a smaller circle, I mean, it could be that someone's making some inappropriate jokes that are racist and everyone in the family's always just laughed or made it sound like it was no big deal. And at that point, you're going to say, um, I don't want to be a part of this, you know, on the inside, like I've been hearing this for a long time and you, it might come out like, Hey, let's not do that. Let's not say that. Or it might come out. You talk that person afterwards, like, Hey, in our family, in this tradition we've had for years, like, could we change the way we talk? And this is my heart behind it. Uh, It's great to share the why. Because sometimes people don't know the why and they might assume something. So if you can explain, hey, this is my heart. This is the why. And sometimes you got to lead with questions. Like when someone does something, you say, hey, help me understand. Because we can jump to conclusions and solutions without understanding and end up in the wrong place. So let's take time to listen to each other. Listening's a lost art. Let's understand, lean in with understanding. But once you survey and you really know what the person's doing and why, and it's clearly wrong, you do need to stand up. And there are a lot of topics today that you're going to take some heat for it. Um, I've taken a lot of heat for stuff, but you got to measure up. Is this worth it? Is this a mountain that's worth dying on? Mm. So sometimes when politics come up, I'll stay quiet because I'll think that's not the mountain I want to die on. But when we're talking about racism, yep, I'm going to put my neck out on the line on that one. So, you know, sort it through in your own heart. Don't just, you know, go by emotion because a lot of people, they're kind of quiet in person and then they'll just go on a rant on mm-hmm. social media. And it's like, I don't think they've thought through the words. I don't <laughs> think they had a friend, you know, look it over. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little late once you put it out there. Once your post is out there, once you say those words, yeah. you can't just reel them back in. So especially when there's a big audience, people don't realize when they're posting something online that there might be a thousand people who see it. There might be 10,000. Yeah. Like if they were in the room, you might think through going online doesn't give you permission to be harsh and nasty. And it doesn't give you permission to slander and gossip. Like now carry yourself well in whatever platform you're on. Yeah, I love that. Make sure it's a mountain. Heard that? Yeah, but just what you said right there. Make yeah. sure it's a mountain that you want to die on. Uh, mm. And my mother used to always say when I would, you know, have something I, that I want to take a stance on. She said, "Do you see? Do you see Jesus' fingers, fingerprints on that? Take out your microscope and see if his fingerprints are on it. Fingerprints mm-hmm. are on it. Go that direction. If they're not, move on. And I think that's, I mean, mountain to die on, and that's strong. And I know Ben, you have a, you want yeah. to go to that final question? I know we we've taken. Yeah, pastor's time up. Ty, you got anything else? No, I just, I just, I, I think that answer is great. I think uh, we, as a culture and, and and as a country, right, we need to, we need to remember. I mean, as a human race, I mean, not even just a country, as a human race, right? We're all on the same team, 
and we're all we can think differently, we can look differently, we can believe differently. But at some point, we just need to recognize that love is has has to have its hand on all of it, yeah. and and recognize. Listen, like if it's an issue that I am convicted and I know and I've done the research, don't just yeah reiterate what you saw somebody else say. Right. Like if you know and you and you you have an opinion because you put in the work, the research, and understand it, and then it aligns you know, at, on, on the deepest level. Okay. Take a stance. And, and I understand it, but like, don't just jump on the bandwagon to jump on the bandwagon. Like that's, that's what, that's literally just throwing gas on fire for zero, for no reason. It's like, it's like using lighter fluid on a fire that's already going. All it is is going to make it bigger and then it's going to burn out. And it was for nothing, but all it did was make the fire bigger and potentially burn somebody. Yes. Well said. It, and the laws are never going to change hearts. It's love that changes hearts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's God's love. It's love in our neighbor. So if it doesn't pass that test of love in our neighbor, then it's better to be quiet. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Bible says, if you stay quiet, people are going to think you're really wise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and there's just wisdom in some restraint. Mm-hmm. And our words have power of life and death. So let's, let's bring those words that are going to help people come alive, heal, restore. And for such a time as this, I mean, we haven't seen our nation in this kind of a spot (laughs) and, and this is, it's timely right now. So Mm -hmm. don't be discouraged. I just keep saying this. Don't be silent. Don't be intimidated. Like this is your time to use your gifts, stand up, speak up, and let's make a difference together. Yeah. I just, I just hope that it doesn't take, we've seen through history, you know, whether it's world war, you know, the, the revolutionary war, whether it's, uh, you know, world war one, world war two, Vietnam, Gulf, 9-11, whatever it is, not for a tragedy of that magnitude for a country to unite. Like mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to say, okay, hey, look, before it gets to that point, let's unite and recognize that, hey, we can move mountains as a country and yeah. we can do so many things mm-hmm. if we're all just moving in the same direction, but we're divided. I mean, what a mess. Yeah. That's right. And I think just going back to racism, for example, like we can have the laws and the land change, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean the hearts change. Right. And where I think it's going to be one ultimately where we're going to have that true union and true equality and true love, it's going to be opening up our hearts, opening up our homes, and it's going to be friendship. Yeah. And all of us can do that. Like as big as the goal is, we've all got something that we can do. And again, I think it's our homes, it's our hearts, it's those friendships, it's having a meal together, it's understanding, it's sometimes crying together, it's apologizing, and, and it's coming together in love. And uh, we we need a source of love greater yeah. than just, I run out of love. Sometimes yeah. my love is small. Yeah. So yeah. I've got to receive love from God to have love yeah. to to bring there. So yeah, abide yeah. is, is what I like to say. You know, you just nailed it. And Darren, I just literally had this conversation on the phone earlier about it, it's not the government's role to come in and make mandates and do all this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's up to individuals to go build relationships. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Racism isn't going to cure itself because the government says so. It's going to cure when we as individuals go yeah. and we form relationships with each other and we mm-hmm. make the difference. And, that's, and that stands for being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have to be okay with being uncomfortable mm-hmm. to get there, mm-hmm. man. Yes. I tell you what, we we got a lot of wide variety of listeners, and and some, there's definitely a portion that maybe they don't have a relationship with Jesus. But I tell you what, what you talked about today can resonate with no matter what your beliefs are. Mm-hmm. These principles you talked about today apply mm-hmm. to any and everyone listening to this. So we so much appreciate your time. We do have one final question. Before we get to that, we do want to let people know where they can find more of you. 
So tell us where they can find you on Twitter, Instagram, website, all that good stuff. Yeah. During COVID, we just put up a new site. The team put it together, jessebradley.org, and it's all free resources. And hopefully not free because it's low quality, but free <laughs> just because we want to help. And there's marriages uh, that you know are struggling right now. So we made marriage videos. Uh, there's practical roadmap for hope because a lot of people, 48% of America, the Census Bureau said during this pandemic, feel hopeless. Mm. And so seeing that, it's like, well, let's make some videos to help people because hope's more of a foundation than a feeling. And there's a practical practical roadmap. So we put that together. So all that to say, jessebradley.org, all the social media stuff is on there and love to connect with anyone that's watching mm-hmm. wants to continue the conversation. And, and I just love what you just added, like, let's be intentional. Let's not just have good intentions, but let's be intentional to build those relationships, to cross some of those divides and uh, really to understand each other. I, I just, you know, like there's a pastor I know that I'm friends with here and he gets death threats because he's black. Well, that's shocking to some white people. Like they're like, what that's happening. It's like, yeah, that's happening. And you don't know unless you have those conversations and ask those questions and then provide that safety where someone can share it. And and then we got to overcome this together. And, and so be intentional, collaborate, and uh, love your neighbor. Yeah. Right so, so uh, Pastor, what's uh, the name of your church? If we're in Seattle, yeah. what is the name of your church? Grace Community Church. We are uh, about, uh, we're south and east in terms of Seattle in the South Sound. Graceinauburn.com. And again, yeah, anyone check it out. Live stream is there. We got that going now on Facebook and <laughs> yeah. YouTube and on our website. So it's it, that's been another upside is now when we talk, um, you know, there's people from all over the world that we're yeah, connecting yeah. with. Yeah. And that's a good thing that's come out of this pandemic. And, you know, that's been exciting. Just spreading up to millions of people. And, and without the pandemic, I don't think it would look anything like this. And, yeah. and so we're grateful for that. Yeah, that's awesome. yeah, you know, we talk about influencers and, and, you know, this new age, you know, social media. You've been an influencer for a long time, man. A long, lot, yeah. lot longer than, than social media. And we appreciate you so much. So last question, you mentioned you've, you've heard a couple of episodes. So you probably know what's coming. If you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean you change anything, but if you could just go tell yourself one thing, yeah. Where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Yeah, I would probably say at the lowest points, like trust God because he redeems, he restores. The years the locusts have eaten, he can heal. And I think that at those darkest times where it just feels like, how is this ever going to improve or come together or loneliness? You know, I got married when I was 34. Like that was a long stretch of being single and desiring to be married. You know, there's just, there's long stretches in life where it just feels like, am I going to get my health back? And during those long stretches, and we need that endurance. I think just to remember the goodness of God that I can still trust him, take heart, you know, have courage. And I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. And out of that pain, that's actually going to be the touch point that it's going to fuel a passion and it's going to connect with people who can relate to that pain and uh, God's going to redeem it. And and I think that confidence kind of in God in those most difficult days, that's what I'd want to speak to myself to reassure that, um, you know, I would, I would just stay on track and, and not give in to those negative feelings. I love that. I think that's what, that's one thing that I would go back and tell myself as well. Like you don't have to do this alone. God's right. got your back. He's with you every step of the way. You don't have to carry all the burdens yourself. You know, our last two guests have said that they would go back and invest in Bitcoin. Would, would you tell yourself that as well? 
That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesse, thank you so That's much, good. man. This has been a pleasure. Again, we hopefully next time we can do this in person, but we sure appreciate you joining us yes. yeah. from the yeah. great yeah. Northwest. Oh, I enjoyed it. We're all going to say let's go Hawks before we close. Right? <laughs> oh, no, we're not. Uh, yes, no, we're yes, not, Jesse. Hey, man, but like Jesse, I, I will say this before, you know, before we get off here, you know, we're, we'll be praying for you, man, but also say a prayer for us as well. Uh, right, we're yeah. trying – we're trying to grow the audience. Uh, we have a lot of those that are listening to us who are probably in need, either be mental, uh, especially with mental on the mental health side of things. So p- please yeah, just you know, say right. a prayer for us as well. Absolutely. If I can, I'll just do that right now to close us out. Absolutely. Love it. Let's do it. Great. Let's do it. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that you're gracious, that you know us, you care about us. And God, so many people are hurting right now. There's deep pain, mourning, loss of loved ones. There's challenges financially, job loss right now, marriages that feel strained. So many people just trying to get a vision of how to make a difference. I pray for everyone who's listening today. God, you are close to the brokenhearted. You are the lifter of our heads. And in our weakness, you're powerful. And I pray for these guys right here as they lead and you've given them this platform. God, I pray that you would help them to identify exactly who they're reaching and the words to bring. And God, I pray beyond this podcast for these three guys, Lord, that their light, the light would shine through them in the darkness. And thank you that light overcomes darkness. God, use us to bring healing. And I pray for anyone that's listening today and feels all alone. I pray that they would know in the deepest part of their being that they are loved, that they are cared for. And I pray that, God, that you are there. You still have a plan. And, God, we can trust you in the most difficult moments. Please heal our nation. We think of racism, and we pray, God. We think of the adoption needs, and we pray. We think of kids overseas and poverty without water, and we pray. Use our nation to make a difference in a powerful way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Hey, wonderful time, guys. Felt like I was at church today. (laughs) (laughs) So did we. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Keep up the good work, guys. That's right. right. Jesse, appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. All All right. right. Take care.